One announcement, we're going to have our Christmas party here Friday, December the 10th. It'll be at 6.30. And come hungry. I can assure you won't leave hungry if you're anything like me. (laughs) I heard something about our cat out there this morning. We've been calling him CC for church cat. Somebody said they're going to change his name to MJ. Uh, MJ is Michael John, John being my middle name. The reasoning behind that is because (laughs) he's old, he's gray, and he eats a lot. (laughs) But I prefer you call him CC. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion this morning by having a few moments of silent prayer. And during that time, we have the opportunity to name any unconfessed sins to God the Father, which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us another day to grow in grace and knowledge. You have revealed the great and mighty things in your word that is alive and powerful. And we pray that you will help us to concentrate so that the Holy Spirit can put into our long-term memory the things that we learned this morning. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you might uh, be glad to hear that we're going to get out of the introduction to Joshua today and actually get into some scripture but not yet we're not through with the introduction yet we've looked at the book of Joshua in a preliminary way in different ways we looked at uh, the place different maps we looked at the person we looked at the theme we looked at different things and this morning we're going to look at it from something that is very important and that is God's timing. God has a time for everything. And God's timing is always perfect. And there's so much to learn how God prepared Joshua. He always prepares leaders. And actually, when he's preparing the people, he's already prepared the leader. God uses prepared believers and he has Uh, demonstrated through the the Pentateuch, the first five uh, books of the Bible, along with uh, what we find in Joshua, that he had prepared Joshua uh, for quite a while. God didn't promote Joshua until he was ready. That's something that we have to remember. Uh, We have our time schedule and our agenda, and God has his time schedule and his agenda. I would suggest that we go along with God's timetable rather than our own. But sometimes we forget that and we want to be promoted before we're ready. But God doesn't doesn't work that way. He prepared Joshua over a period of time and he learned much from Moses. In fact, he was Moses' aide 
and his right arm for uh, quite a while. He had known Moses and been his aide for uh, since his youth, actually. And that's in Numbers chapter 11, verse 28. Some of the things that God did to prepare him was to engage in military uh, career because Joshua led the people into the land and he had to be competent as a, a military leader. He led one of the first victories of the Israelites over the Amalekites in Exodus chapter 17, verse 8 through 10. That's the one where Moses would hold his arms up and they would win the battle. They would, but whenever he got tired and they would, the arms would start to go down, they'd start uh, losing, and so they propped up his arms and so forth. He also was with Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, he didn't go all the way to the top, but it was a great honor for him to go halfway up the mountain as he waited for Moses. And you'll remember when Moses came down off the mountain with the tablets, the Ten Commandments, that Joshua thought there was a raid, there was a battle going on in the encampment down below. And as they found out, it was an encampment, I mean a battle indeed. Uh, the people had defied the Lord and they were having a, uh, an orgy. This is in uh, Exodus chapter 24, verse 13. He and Caleb were the only two spies that went into the land to spy it out that believed the Lord and were willing and anxious to go in and take the land. And that is in Numbers chapter 14, verse 6 through 9. Remember all the rest of the, of the men that were, went on this reconnaissance mission were unfaithful, unbelieving, and caused the people to uh, cry and reject the offer of the land. And so God said, okay, you don't want to go in the land? Put them back in the desert. And everyone from uh, 20 and below were going to die. And a new generation was going to be taken into the land by none other than Joshua. Now Moses knew that he would not go into the promised land and he demonstrated great love towards the people by asking God to appoint a man to take his place. Uh, this is in Numbers chapter 27, verses 15 through 17. I want you to go there, if you will, in your Bibles. There's a lot there for us to glean. Numbers chapter 27. Moses chapter, uh, excuse me, Numbers chapter 27, verse 15. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, May the Lord, the God of the, of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. And Moses was said to be the most humble person in the world, and yet he had great authority. God was dealing directly with him in order to lead the Israelites. But here we see something of his sensitivity, something of his great capacity to love the people that he had authority over by recognizing that, first of all, 
there had to be someone to replace him because as we'll see as we go through these few verses here, that God did not allow him to go into the land because he disobeyed God. And rather than pouting, rather than uh, just being remiss with regards to the leadership that the people would need when they went into the land, he is already here asking the Lord for someone to replace him. Now that in itself is very thoughtful. A lot of times people in the leadership position could care less what happens to those under their authority once they leave, but not Moses. Moses is asking the Lord for someone to fill in his shoes. And another thing that we can see from this is that Moses didn't try to pick the man himself. He recognized that God is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows the inside as well as the outside, the innermost thoughts. He can see the soul of a person. And so rather than nominating someone, rather than making a suggestion, he just asked the Lord to get the right person for the job. He knew that no one other than the Lord uh, could know perfectly who was qualified and who would uh, fill his shoes. So he says in verse 16, May the Lord God of the spirits of all flesh appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them and who will lead them out and bring them, bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. So he is thinking about the people, not himself. He's not trying to, to make the, the people go to that place where they would think, well, that new leader isn't anything like Moses. Moses was so great. See, he could very easily have done that, uh, tried to win a popularity contest, but he's not doing that. What he's doing, he has true capacity to love the people, and he's thinking about them after he was gone, what was going to happen to him. So he was. this is a great thoughtfulness on his part. This is something that's instructive to the church. If we want a man to fit a job that he's going to be entrusted to, of high responsibility. It is God that can furnish the right man, he and no other. So we always look to God to pro provide our leadership. So God answered his request and instructed Moses to commission Joshua to be the next leader over Israel. Let's keep reading here. Verse 18. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand upon him, and have him stand before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation, and commission him in their sight. A lot of things in here. First of all, we see that he had the, he, in whom was the Spirit. Now, this is not the same type of a ministry that the Holy Spirit has to us in the church age. He was not indwelt with the Holy Spirit as we are. And uh, we recognize that in the Old Testament, they had what may be called the endowment or the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But it was on very few people, just less than one half of one percent of the people ever had this 
empowerment, and it was for a special duty. So it's not that he was indwelt with the Holy Spirit, but he did have the Holy Spirit ministry working within him and for him. And then it says that he was to take him before Eleazar, and uh, we'll see why that's uh, important in a moment. He had to make sure that the priesthood was going to identify with him also. And then it says in, <clears throat> excuse me, in verse 18 it says, And lay your hand on him. Now this, is the, this is the first time we see that this particular method of identifying a leader is employed. Now this is talking about today in the church age. We still do this. It's called the laying on of hands. When we commission or when, whenever a deacon is installed in this church, one of the things that we do as a ritual is all the deacons that are here will put their hands on the head of this person who is being installed as a deacon. He kneels down and it's as though all the deacons are putting their hands on him I, as a pastor, do the same, and we are identifying him in front of the congregation that he has that authority and that position. It's recognized. And that's what they were doing here, and it was evidently the first time that this was done. Uh, it used to be that they would anoint him with oil. Now, the same thing is done for a pastor also. So far, you hadn't had to do that. <laughs> uh, but when a new pastor comes, you it's, it's uh, the same type of ritual and he said uh, stand before Eleazar and we'll get into that more identification with the priesthood and commission him in their sight the pulpit commentary on numbers has this to say about that particular issue it says Moses laid his hands upon him this is the earliest example in scripture scripture of a rite of investiture which was afterwards much in use, which was transferred by the apostles to the New Testament church and is the familiar custom of the church of Christ still. So Moses gave Joshua a charge, a commission. The scope and substance of the charge are recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 28. There's a few scriptures that I'm going to deal with here so you can look on the board if you want or you can turn in your Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 3 verse 28 charge Joshua encourage him and strengthen him for he shall go across at the head of his of this people and he will give them as an inheritance the land which you will see. So it's before the people. This is so that everyone will recognize that he is taking over the reins. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 7 and 8. Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous. We're going to hear that over and over again, especially in this first chapter. He is encouraging him to be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. And you shall give it to them as an inheritance. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. So 
this is a great encouragement that Joshua is going to receive. He's, he's got Moses, which was the man of the hour for all this time. Joshua was, saw the faithfulness of God and all the miracles that God performed in order to deliver the people. And Moses was God's spokesman. And instead of leaving him in the lurch, he has Moses encouraging him. Now, what Moses was doing was not just some uh, uh, soundbite, not just some hollow, hollow gesture. When he's telling Joshua that God will go before him and he's going to give them the land, he's speaking from about... Uh, 80 years of experience of seeing the faithfulness of God. So he's not just, this is not hollow. This is very, uh, a, a very great inspiration to a person like uh, Joshua coming from Moses and knowing that Moses is not like so many uh, today. Just take a sound bite and it's hollow. He's speaking from experience. So God instructed Moses to uh, also delegate some authority to Joshua so the people would get accustomed to Joshua and there would be a smooth transition when he took over. Let's look at this again in, in verse uh, 20. We're in Numbers chapter 27, verse 20. And you shall put some of your authority on him in order that all the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him. Now what's interesting about this Moses is still alive. Moses is still the big cheese. However, he is delegating some authority to Joshua before uh, Moses is off the scene so they can get used to taking orders from Joshua. So there would be a smooth transition. God was preparing both Joshua and the people for the challenges that lay ahead. Can you see how great this is? Joshua was prepared by a super leader, Moses. Moses could have said, look, I'm the, I'm the head guy here, and that's the way it's going to be until I'm off the scene, and that's the way it's going to be. But Moses was humble, he was smart, and he was obedient to God. And so he started delegating authority that normally we would be Moses' authority, so that they would have a smooth transition. This is always a smart thing to do, by the way, is to de delegate authority, and uh, God was behind this whole transition. Uh, verse 21. Moreover, he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his command they shall go out and at his command they shall come in, both he and the sons of Israel with him, even all the congregation. This is going to take a little bit of explanation. I'm going to put this on the board so you can see some of the quotes I have here. Now he had to, re uh, had to start a relationship with Joshua and the priesthood. Because as we're going to see, God spoke directly to Moses. He didn't have a, a, someone, a mediator in between. But it's not going to be that way with Joshua. God is going to speak to him some face to face. 
but most of the time he's going to go through the priesthood. And so we have these instructions for uh, Joshua to stand before Eleazar, the high priest, in order to establish a relationship. God would reveal his instruction through priests and through prophets to Joshua. Now here is a, a quote. Uh, let's see, what is this from? This is from um, the New American Commentary. And you heard something in there that you might not be familiar with, and that was Urim. Did you hear that? Well, what is Urim? Unlike Moses, who enjoyed direct access to Yahweh in seeking his will, Joshua's authority was complemented by Eleazar, who would assist him in decision-making by inquiring of the Lord via the Urim, sacred, the sacred lots. The Urim usually listed in conjunction with the Thummim. Now, at the end of this message, we're going to have a, a quiz, and you're going to have to spell these. No, not really. I just well, hope that you understand what they are. Uh, so Urim and Thummim usually uh, go together, and they were among the stones pra uh, placed in the high priest's breastplate and probably were in addition to the 12 stones representing the tribes of Israel. And you have a couple of Exodus 20, 30, uh, 28, 30 and Leviticus 8, 8. These are a couple of verses where these are mentioned. Now I want to show you a little bit about what this is. What this is, the Urim and Thummim. But before we do that, I think we need to show you what the breastplate is. And here is a representation here. This is the, the high priest wore the breastplate. You see it right here which had 12 stones on it. This is a close-up close of it. And he would wear this over an ephod. And this part here looks kind of like an apron-type thing. is called the ephod. This is when he is in his uh, ceremonial uh, attire. And when it's saying that the Urim and Thummim interacted somehow with the breastplate, that's the breastplate. This is the ephod. And we, we don't really know. I, I did a lot of research with regards to Urim and Thummim. And there's a lot of guesses, but we just don't know how it worked. Some people think it was stones that went in the pocket of the ephod and they would cast them as lots. Some think that they actually lit up. We, we really don't have any idea the mechanics of how they worked. But we do know that God would intercede and use these devices in order to inform the priest so that he could inform uh, the king or the leader, in this case uh, Joshua, what to do under certain situations. So let's go back to our scripture. Okay, there it is. So we're talking about Urim and Thummim, and we understand now at least something about them. There's a little more information here. The Urim and Thummim were instruments of divine illumination via a priestly intermediary. Though the physical shape and the methodology of utilization are not revealed in Scripture. 
Harrison notes concerning these two words, which begin with the first aleph, aleph, that's the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and the last is ta. So what we're seeing is that uh, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, what we're saying is, even though it sounds strange, the word Urim in the Hebrew starts with the letter A, Aleph, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, but it's silent. So that's why even though the word is Urim and it has a vowel in it, a U, starts with U, there's a silent A before it. And then the, when you get to the Thummim, it starts with the letter Tau, which is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So what he's saying, this, and this is, uh, I think, a supposition, but he's saying if this is the merismus uh, motif, I'm sure you all know what that is, uh, in which opposites are paired to denote totality, it could be interpreted to mean complete truth and revelation. Later in Israel's history, the prophets as spokesmen for the Lord superseded the Urim and Thummim as instruments of divine revelation. So it's, this is the way it started. And it just think a lot, so much of this is supposition, but we have to deal with it because the Bible mentions these, these devices, whatever they were, several times, the Urim and Thummim. There's been times in my life, and maybe you are, are the same, that you wish you had a Urim and Thummim. Uh, we don't have a neon sign that says, turn right here or take this fork in the road. We have to use uh, our best judgment, the doctrine we have in our soul, and prayer. So, I don't want to just fly right by these, these things. So, uh, especially Urim, we could do that and you'd, you'd kind of miss out there. So, back in your Bible... Verse 21, we're in Numbers chapter 27, verse 21, you'll notice that Urim is capitalized. That's what we're looking at. Now, it doesn't say Thummim here, but most of the time when you see Urim, the Thummim goes with it. I think they acted in conjunction somehow. So, Moses did not want the congregation, the, the, the Israelites, to be like sheep without a shepherd just wandering and he's preparing verse 22 and Moses did just as the Lord commanded him and he took Joshua and set him before Eleazar the priest before all the congregation then he laid his hands on him and commissioned him just as the Lord had spoken through Moses so Moses did what he was supposed to do and he commissioned him in front of of everyone, and that concludes our introduction, nearly. <laughs> One other glance before we get into the scripture. This is um, Joshua at a glance, and what we see on the left column is just the, uh, what it's going to be talking about. The focus, actually... What we see is the book of Joshua is divided into two parts. The first part has to do with the conquest of the land, and the second part has to do with settling 
and dividing the land and, and settling in the land of Canaan. Uh, you see the reference, there's the next column down, and you have the conquest of Canaan uh, goes through the, from the first verse to, of the first chapter to the first verse of the sixth chapter. So about six chapters we have the Israelites conquering the land and then the settling of the land goes from uh, from chapter what is that, uh, 13 to uh, 24. I guess actually the, the conquering of the land would go from the first chapter to the 13th chapter thereabouts and then from chapter uh, 13 all the way to the end in chapter 24 has to do with the settling of the land. And in the first portion of it, you have the preparation of Israel. Always there's preparation before God moves, before he does something. So he prepared the leader, and then he's going to prepare the people, and then he's going to give them orders, cross the Jordan. What a challenge that's going to be. And then you have the settlement of the land. You see all that. The topic down below, uh, you have entering uh, Canaan and then conquering uh, Canaan. And then you have all those chapters of dividing the promised land, which was Canaan. And you have the location was the Jordan River. And the, we'll get, uh, this is just, the, just a snapshot here. What's interesting, I think, though, is it took um, approximately seven years for the conquest of Canaan. And it took eight years to divide it up and settle it. It took longer to settle it and to get situated there than it did to conquer it to begin with. I thought that was a little interesting. Then down here, I don't know if you can see this or not. It's just probably a blur to some of you because it's fairly small. But here we have the date, 1400 B.C. is where our scriptures begin with the death of Moses. Then you go to 1375 B.C., which is the death of Joshua. And then timeline goes, here you have King David, which was about 1,000 B.C. And then here you have Ezra, about 500 B.C. And somewhere around 500 B.C. to the uh, birth of Christ, there's just the Bible is silent. So you get an idea of uh, overall scope of what we see. And now we're ready... For verse 1. So turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. Now if you like, you can look up here if you don't have a Bible and go over some of the, the notes that I'll have here. Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, my, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Now you'll notice on the board that I have certain phrases sometimes just a word that I have underlined because those are the things that I'm going to deal with specifically. 
Proster, first of all, when it says, now it came about after the death of Moses, this is, some say it shouldn't say now, it should be translated and. This is, the, this is a continuation, as it were, from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 34, where Moses is, dies and then this, it goes right into Joshua now. And so it's going to speak about the death of Moses uh, Moses was not allowed to enter the land, the promised land, because of Numbers chapter 20, verse 1 through 12, and Deuteronomy th chapter 32, verse uh, 48 through 52. Let's go to Deuteronomy. That looks like a little bit of shorter. It's going to give us the information about why, why wasn't Moses, after everything that God used him for, why was he not allowed to go into the land? Well, you go to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32 tells us why Moses didn't go into the land. Verse 48. The Lord spoke to Moses that very same day, saying, Go up to this mountain on the Ab Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and look at the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the sons of Israel for a possession. Then die on the mountain where you ascend, and be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. Because, now, here we get the reasoning here. Because you broke faith with me in the midst of the sons of Israel at the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel. For you shall see the land at a distance, but you shall not go there into the land which I am giving the sons of Israel. Well, let's go to Numbers chapter 20. That didn't give the exact some of the details that I wanted. You understand that he disobeyed God, and that's why he's not going, but... We'll start with verse 3. Numbers chapter 20, verse 3. This is the typical modus operandi of the Israelites. You'll see, complaining. Numbers 23, chapter 20, verse 3. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Oh, I wish I was dead. See, they don't have any water. At the Red Sea, they had too much water. Now they don't have any water, and they're complaining to Moses. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. Now, this is the second time around, by the way. We already went through this same procedure earlier. Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of the meeting and fell on their faces. This is what you do, by the way, when you have people attacking you. And they probably already had the stones in their hands. They didn't have water. And whose fault was it? It was always Moses' fault. 
Always go to the leader. It's his fault. And so, now you, you recognize I say that facetiously. I don't mean that it's his fault. But that's, they always pass the buck up to the top, and he's, he's the one that they're complaining to. And so they do the right thing. Moses and, and Aaron do the right thing. They go before the Lord, and they fall on their faces. They are praying to the Lord. What are we going to do? We don't have any water. Aaron can't make any water. I can't make any water. The people have the stones in their hands. They're ready to kill us. Only thing that we do can do is go to you and, and state our case in prayer. And then it says, Then the glory of the Lord appeared to them, verse 7, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod that you and your brother Aaron your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes. There's a big rock there. That it may yield its water. I want you to underline speak. Speak to the rock. By the way, that rod was the rod that budded when they had an issue with regards to who was leader, was the real leader. And underline rock. And this word for rock is I can't read my own handwriting here. It means it's, I, I can't even read the, my own handwriting, but I can tell you what it means, huh? S E okay. I thought that was, I I didn't have okay. Sela S E L A and it means a word for it's a word for a a lofty elevated rock so you have symbol symbol symbolism here this is the rock that's referring to jesus christ now earlier on when they didn't they went to the same situation god told him to strike the rock this was symbolic of jesus christ being struck for us on the cross for our sins and god had the water flow this time is talking about christ as a resurrected christ an elevated rock elevated and you don't strike the resurrected Christ. You, and that's why he says, speak to the rock. Speak to Christ. And so that's very important for him to follow these instructions. He said, speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Listen now, you rebels. Shall we, underline we, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Woo! He is angry, and he is really off base now. Was Moses able to provide water out of a rock? And he's talking about, can't, he, you always come, you, can't you see Moses? And he is livid. He is angry. He's tired of this complaining. God has been faithful throughout the whole time, and now he's had it with them. And he's saying, must we, Aaron and I, always do what you provide for what you need? Oh, that was a big no-no, wasn't it? I mean, God is trying to teach the people something, uh, something here, and Moses is saying, look, it's Aaron and I are going to have to give you this water. So that was a big enough problem. But remember, he was supposed to speak to the rock. So look what he does. Verse 
11. Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. Now, can you just see him doing that? I mean, it wasn't, I don't have anything, like I was going to show you how it went. Here's just about how big my rod is right here. Yeah, but you say, he said, strike the rock. Now, he just didn't go, oh, <laughs> like this, you know, strike it. He probably said, wham, and hit it, wham. He hits it twice. And this had to be a hardwood rod because it probably would have broken. He hits it twice, and he's no doubt screaming at the people. He is so angry. But this is, be sure you don't miss this. He's, he takes credit. He and Aaron are going to take credit for the water coming out. He was supposed to speak to the rock, but he struck it, which is absolutely blasphemous. But look what happens in the middle of verse 11. And the water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. Now, that's what you call G-R-A-C-E, all in big capital letters. And aren't you glad that God treats you and me the same way? Now, it's not that he got off scot-free. I mean, God could have told, turned him into a toadstool right then. He could have done anything he wanted to, but he took him... What, look what happens next. Verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel... Therefore, you shall not bring the assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the water of Meribah. Meribah means to chide or to, to complain. Because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord and he proved himself holy among them. Now that is why Moses was not going to enter into the promised land. But I want you to get an idea. We were talking about how this, where this is. Now, here is a map. This is the Dead Sea. This is the Mediterranean Sea. Inside here you have the land of Canaan, which is now Israel. And Mount Nebo that Moses was brought to was right here. God brought him to here to see all this land right here. And here's Jericho. Here's Jerusalem, Bethlehem. Up here you have Tel Aviv and Ashdod. He brought him up so he could see what the, the promised land, which I thought was gracious of God to do this. Here's another view of it. This is a satellite view. Here it is. Mount, Mount Nebo is over here. Here's the Jordan River going through here. And you have, again, here's uh, Jericho, and you have um, Bethlehem and Jerusalem. Now, this may look like a long ways, but I think it's only about 50 miles, something like that, from the Mediterranean to here. Ken, do you remember how y'all were over there? It's the, the scale from, from here, from uh, Shatim is right over in here, and from here to Jericho from here to here is about 10 miles. So you can kind of figure out what that is. So th that's where this is taking place. Uh, here's a, here, while we're showing these maps, I'll show you this also. This is some of the things, a route that the Israelites took before they went over here to Shittim. This is where they're about to, here's the, the river. 
and they're going to cross and they're going to go to a Jericho. AI isn't shown here. Uh, Numbers 21:30 and 22:1 give the in, give you details about what's going on here. But where we're the, the location of where they're going to cross the river is right in this area, right above the Dead Sea here. And they're going to cross and go across to Jericho. And I have another map that show, actually d shows you where Mount Nebo is. Now, this is so small. I know you can't see these, these, these uh, letters, the designations, but it pans out. And you get an idea how mountainous it, it is here and here. This is Mount Nebo right here. That's uh, where Moses uh, saw the land. And here is... Uh, Shittim, and here is Jericho and uh, Jerusalem. Trying to give you an idea where Moses was when he went up on the mountain and spoke to God. Our God uh, was very gracious in showing him the land that he was not able to go through. So back to our notes here. We have... The death of Moses, you have a little bit more information about that. And <coughs> we have uh, something else about Deuteronomy uh, 34, 1 through 9. That's the last book in Deuteronomy, by the way, right before we get into uh, Joshua. And 1 through 9, again, uh, talks about Moses is uh, not going into the land. This is a note from uh, Easton's Bible Dictionary. It says, A mountain in the land of Moab from which Moses looked for the first and the last time on the promised land. Uh, it has been identified with Jabal Nabah on the eastern shore of the Dead Sea. We won't go through all that. Uh, we've already seen the maps. But it does say that this, this mountain is about 2,643 feet in height. So it's a pretty high mountain. He could see across there. Then we have the servant of the Lord is the next phrase. Go to Joshua chapter 1 in your Bibles. Now it came about after the death of Moses, we saw that the servant of the Lord. Now you might think, okay, what's the big deal? We know he was a servant of the Lord. That's very instructive for us. Interestingly, Moses is called the servant of the Lord three times in Joshua. We have it in uh, Joshua 1, verse 1, verse 13, and verse 15. He's also called that in Exodus 14, 31. And 13 times elsewhere, elsewhere in the book of Joshua. And at the end of Joshua's life, he too was called the servant of the Lord. Joshua 24, verse 29. Now what this is saying is you'd never get this until you put all the pieces together and find out this is a very high honor be called the servant of the Lord. Moses has already demonstrated his faithfulness and God had elevated him to this very high position called the servant of the Lord. At this point in chapter 1, many times you hear Moses referred to as the servant of the Lord, but you don't hear that about Joshua until the very end of the book. Now, why is that? Because he had to prove himself. He had to demonstrate that he was worthy of that high honor to be called the servant of the Lord. So the book of Joshua carefully refrains from calling Joshua by this 
honorific title until the very last chapter when Joshua dies. He is finally accorded the title of servant of the Lord. I'm sorry about this. this there's something in this computer that likes to turn colors sometimes. Now we have then Joshua the son of Nun. Now this is the Old Testament way of giving the lineage of a person. They didn't have the last names like we do, so they would give the names of their father to help identify. So that's just, instead of saying uh, Joshua Jones or, you know, Joshua the son of Nun. Now today we have last names, but that was identifying them. Now it does, this is interesting, it does have the word for servant. It says Moses' servant. Look at verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. That's that high, you ought to underline that. That's a high honor to be called that. The Lord spoke to, to Joshua, the son of Nun. We just looked at Mo, Mo, uh, Moses' servant saying. So the word servant here is Sarah, S-A-R-A, and it means to render assistance or help usually as a lower status person serving a superior. There's a big difference between being called Moses' servant and being called the servant of the Lord. You understand that the, last, the latter part is much more, uh, it's a much higher title. So we have at this point, Joshua is who? Moses' servant. Moses is who? The Lord's servant. Eventually, Joshua will be called the Lord's servant. Now, in verse 2, look at your, your scripture here. It says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise and cross the Jordan. Uh, look at this when it says, my servant. I want you to do this. In verse 1, you have the word servant. Moses' is servant. Last words there. Last part. And then in verse 2, you have Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, the word servant for here is a different Hebrew word. Here you have the word ebed, and it means a bondservant, one who is owned by another. So Moses was the servant in the sense as a bondservant. God owned him. He was doing his bidding, as we all should aspire to be that type of servant. But it wasn't the same word as we see over in the first verse when it's Moses' Moses' servant is just an, an, an attendant. And he says, then now therefore arise. And this word, Hebrew word for rise is kum, Q-U-M. It means preparation for or something as we are to be empowered, to be strengthened and so forth. What we see is this is a command. So God has prepared Joshua, and now it's time for him to move out, arise. It doesn't mean just get up on your feet. It means prepare for battle. It means to be established, to be strong, this type of thing. Now, one of the things before we close on, on this portion of the first uh, verse, first couple of verses, God uses prepared people. And when, when Joshua was being prepared all this time, he may have thought, you know what, this is, this is a, um, a go-nowhere job. And he could have complained. He could have said, well, I'm tired of all this and just bailed out. 
Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever had a job or maybe you have a job right now that you may think, well, this is a go-nowhere job. I mean, this is, this is a nothing. Why should I stay here? Why should I do my best? This isn't really what I aspire to do. So if you're in that situation, just remember this. Every step of the way, God was preparing Joshua to take over the leadership role of the entire nation. He had a specific plan for him and a specific job that he would eventually fill. I don't know about you, but I've had some pretty weird old jobs in my day. But you know what? I don't care if you're in a, a flipping burgers or being a, a home, homemaker, housewife, whatever you want to, whatever it is, this is the thing. God uses prepared believers and he is preparing you. Are you going to take that task, even if you think it's menial, even if you think it is below you, are you going to do the best that you're able to do because you recognize that you're working for the Lord? You're not working for your employer. Are you going to be able to be faithful in that job and recognize this is preparation because I don't care where you are, what your job is, there are challenges and there are tests and you are being prepared for what's next. We need to bear that in mind because during all those, all those preparations, Joshua remained faithful. And he was under, under Moses all this time. He was not a self-promoter. You know what happens to self-promoters? Sometimes they're successful and they get into a job that they aspire to, to have. But then what happens? They can't cut it. They weren't competent. They weren't fully prepared. So whatever job you may have, Remember this, God is preparing you. And there's, I don't care where it may be or what it is, God is saying, are you going to be faithful? Are you going to do your best? And the challenges and the decisions you make there, you carry on to your next job so that you can be that servant. So that maybe someday we'll hear the greatest of all accolades. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. What a high honor. Now, I'd like everyone please to close your eyes and bow your heads. The last portion of this service is for someone who is still struggling with what's going to happen with them after they die. There's no reason to struggle with that. The Bible makes it clear. He who believes in the Lord has eternal life. It's a gift. All you have to do is believe in Jesus Christ and His work on the cross rather than your own works. The Bible says that faith, faith is counted for righteousness. That means that you have God's own righteousness and your ticket to heaven is guaranteed. You can make that decision now. You don't have to say anything audibly or do anything other than in your own mind recognize that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He went to the cross. He died for your sin. He rose again. And now we'll give eternal life to anyone who will trust Him and Him alone for it. Now, Father, thank You for this time we have given us to sing these great hymns this morning, to look at just a small portion of the preparation for Joshua, who was just a man, but a man that was faithful and a man that you could use because you prepared him 
and you use prepared people. We pray that you will help us to be in that place where you can use us and that we won't chide and complain and marabah along the way in the preparation so that we can reflect your glory. We pray this in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.